This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of August 1st, 2022, here are some top stories. Thursday night, two days after polls closed in Arizona, the Associated Press called the Republican primary for governor for former local news anchor Carrie Lake. The first-time candidate for public office is an election-denying new convert to the Republican Party. Ben Giles reports. Lake was endorsed by former President Donald Trump and now joins a slate of Trump-endorsed Republicans to win statewide primaries in Arizona. She bested Karen Taylor Robeson, a wealthy land developer who was the preferred candidate of establishment Republicans, like Governor Doug Ducey and former Vice President Mike Pence. Lake dedicated much of her campaign to Trump's lies about the 2020 election and has vowed to continue to do so ahead of the general election in November. She's also baselessly claimed fraud in her own current election, despite declaring victory. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. They say the easiest stories to cover are those in your own backyard. And in our backyard here at KJZZ lies one of the most famous and busiest traffic interchanges in the state, which just happens to be undergoing major changes. So Phil Latzman stepped outside for a first-hand look at the Valley's big dig. It seems like everybody knows the Broadway curve. Is that sort of the most recognizable junction in Phoenix and maybe in Arizona? I would say so. I mean, you know, we name our freeways different stuff, but when you say Broadway curve, everybody knows what it is. That's Julie Gatsby with the Arizona Department of Transportation, and she's gotten to know it all too well. She's the construction manager for the massive $776 million I-10 Broadway Curve Improvement Project. And so why was this so important to make sure that this area was improved. Anyone that's driven through this, there's a lot of weaving once you're between 60 and I-10 here, and so for safety, we wanted to improve it. More than 300,000 vehicles pass through this big bend each day. The construction project is one of the most expensive and extensive in the state's history. It actually extends several miles from the Loop 202 to the I-17 split. The undertaking involves three different freeways and will take four years from start to finish. By 2025, this is going to reduce people's commute by 25% during rush hour. That's Quinn Castro with the Maricopa Association of Governments, which handles planning for the project. And it's going to improve access to over 4,500 businesses along the corridor. The main objective is to widen I-10 significantly between Ray Road and I-17. It also involves rebuilding interchanges and bridges. I-10 in this segment is 11 miles kind of through the heart of uh, Tempe and City of Phoenix, a little bit of town of Guadalupe and City of Chandler. And while it doesn't seem like very many miles of freeway, it's a huge impact um, to our economy. The improvements were planned before the pandemic and before inflation took hold. If it, we had waited two years, the contractor, knowing the risk that happened, yes, we, we would have paid more. I can't say how much. This type of project may have possibly been in jeopardy because of higher costs in this day and age compared to what it was a few years ago. That is correct. And while traffic did see a precipitous drop back in 2020, demand has already returned to pre-pandemic levels. It's expected to increase by 75,000 motorists per day by 2040. 
project began almost exactly a year ago, and during an online forum, residents wanted to know more. I have a question to see if there's any bicyclist considerations or any type of bike lanes or what type of besides pedestrian walking plans there are. ADOT spokeswoman Marcy McMacken says yes. We are building two new pedestrian bridges over I-10 between Broadway Road and Baseline Road, and we're also improving and widening Guadalupe Road to connect the Sun Circle Trail, which is a 300-mile loop trail that is often used by hikers, uh, equestrians, and mountain bike riders. And here is another concern. Is the air quality going to be any worse than it already is here between the airplane flying overhead and the freeway? What about the environmental impacts of a project like this? It's already a heavily trafficked area, but how do you prevent it becoming even more congested and polluted? By adding the extra capacity, we um, believe we're actually going to improve air quality because the congestion is going to reduce and allowing them to pass through earlier. And ADOT's McMacken says most of the work that's being done happens while many of us are sleeping. We have to close the freeway down overnight and sometimes on weekend in order to ensure the safety of motorists. So that's why currently a lot of this work is being conducted overnight. The project is being paid for by a half-cent tax in Maricopa County, which is in danger of expiring in 2025 after Governor Doug Ducey vetoed a bill that would have given voters the chance to extend it. Is it, is it fair to say that this project is not possible without that tax? Yes, a majority of the funding from this project is from that half-cent sales tax, and additional funding is provided by the Federal Highway Administration. The four-year undertaking is now in its second year and is expected to continue through 2024. Already, ADOT says girders for a new bridge have gone up at 48th Street and Broadway. A 75-foot utility pole has been relocated and sound block walls are being constructed. In the next phase, crews will reconfigure ramps, begin construction of collector-distributor ramps, and continue the process of widening a stretch of I-10 south of downtown Phoenix four to six general purpose lanes and two HOV lanes. And you can be assured that we'll keep an eye on it from our studios here at the Broadway Curve. Phil Latzman, KJZZ News. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In education news. Through our Q&AZ reporting project, a listener asked, what is the significance and origin of Papago Park's mysterious Tree of Life structure? Bridget Dowd has the answer. Papago Park is a popular spot for morning runs, sunset hikes, and other outdoor activities. Phoenix resident Garrett Mack has been mountain biking there for years. At the far end of the park, I would often ride by this stone kind of brick structure. He says the structure didn't appear to have any utility and was oddly shaped. So I went home and, and promptly did a, a Google Maps uh, search and looked at it and, and it looked kind of like a tree, like a, a lopsided tree. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Little did he know, a tree is exactly what the structure is supposed to look like. From the ground level, it's hard to tell. Located on the southwest corner of Galvin Parkway and McDowell Road, it's a 240-foot-long stone wall with seven smaller curving stone walls branching off on either side. So it really got me thinking, like, what? There's got to be a story here. <laughs> There's something to this, right? This, is, this isn't some accident. Mac is right. The funky desert art piece isn't just for passersby to look at and wonder about. It actually serves a purpose, delivering rainwater to the surrounding desert plants. 
Jody Pinto is a New York-based artist who travels to work on various public art projects. In the late 80s, she was watching an episode of This Old House on TV that featured landscape architect Steve Martino. And I just thought, I'm going to write down this man's name. And if I ever want to collaborate with a landscape architect who understands desert, this will be the person. As luck would have it, in the early 1990s, the cities of Scottsdale and Phoenix held a public art competition. They wanted to commission a work of art which would mark both the boundary between the two cities and the entrance to the park. I called Steve, immediately introduced myself, sent him slides of my work and said, look, if you're interested, I would love to enter this competition with you. Steve liked my work, he sent back a message saying, yes, let's do it. Martino is an Arizona native who's worked on several projects in that area. You know, I, I like it because it, it was a contribution to Papago Park, and I, I felt guilty because I kind of terrorized Papago Park when I was a kid. Martino used to ride motorized scooters at the park, and he'd made a few trails where maybe he shouldn't have. So he saw this as a chance to make up for it. More than 400 entries were submitted to the contest, and they got the job. Pinto says they wanted the project to be a celebration of life and regeneration in the desert. We felt we needed to deal with a structure that would be about farming, desert farming, water harvesting. And I thought a tree or a leaf might be the form that our project could take. They designed the main stone wall to form a tree trunk that functions as a water-harvesting aqueduct. It collects rainwater, and several cuts along the trunk allow the water to gush out onto farming terraces filled with native desert plants. The project required countless dump trucks full of stone, but luckily Martino says they got it for free from a quarry. Where they made gravel for the freeways, and their crushers would spit off these hard pieces they couldn't crush, and... uh, They said, you can have it if you haul it away. Martino got his hands on some free plants, too, and any plants that were removed from the park site were preserved and replaced. And what was really lucky was when it was finished, there were some rainstorms, really heavy rainstorms. And I went out there to see how it worked, and water missed our entry point. It kind of (laughs) went off to the side. So it gave me a chance to get a tractor out there and do a little more grading. The next time it rained, the water went where it was supposed to. Hundreds of people came out to celebrate the finished piece by casting seeds over the land on the longest farming day of the year, the summer solstice. Within two years, new plants were blooming and thriving. The last time I was out there, there was cactus that we put in 30 years ago, and we put little chicken wire fences around the bottom to keep the rabbits from eating them. And they doubled in size. There's trees there that uh, weren't there, you know, that have come up from seed, so... It was a success. And Pinto says, to this day, the Tree of Life remains one of her favorite projects. I knew very, very little about deserts. And now, when I travel, I understand things that I never would have realized if I hadn't worked with Steve and the communities. So for me, I'm forever indebted. (laughs) Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you can ask your own question at our website, qaz.kjzz.org. In Fronteras News, a growing number of people in the Sonoran capital, Hermosillo, are starting to consider how the city and its residents can deal with the impacts of climate change in the already hot, dry Sonoran desert. For some, native plants are an important part of the solution, 
From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust brings us this story about urban reforestation. See, La Lisiera uses a shovel to gouge a shallow hole in the hard, dry ground of the Yanez Cemetery near the center of the sprawling Sonoran capital, Hermosillo. It's a sticky July afternoon, gray storm clouds rolling in with the promise of much-needed rain. Sierra, her husband, and their two daughters are part of a group of volunteers scattered along the pathway, planting small, spindly palo verdes they hope will grow into a lush row of shady trees laden with vibrant yellow flowers each spring. Sierra says it's thrilling for her kids to see the trees they planted in previous years thriving in the quiet cemetery. They're working with the nonprofit Caminantes del Desierto to turn it into an urban forest with more than 2,000 native plants. She says reforesting key sites like this one with palo verdes, mesquites, and ironwoods can improve their city, making it more livable and resilient in the face of climate change, growing heat, and diminishing water supplies. Environmentalist Sergio Mueller is co-founder of Caminantes del Desierto, or Desert Walkers. He says Sonora is facing a water crisis. Communities across the state routinely find their taps running dry during the summer months, some struggle to access water year-round. And for the past two years, the capital has only been saved from widespread water shortages by last-minute monsoon rains. Y las con eso al no agua. Native plants, he says, can help, providing shade and beauty without soaking up excessive amounts of Hermosillo's scarce water. They're also more resilient than non-native plants. Mueller says just 20 years ago, Hermosillo was a green city, but many of the trees that filled parks and lined streets have died, unable to withstand the heat, drought, and storms that many native plants are made for. So his group and others are planting native trees in the cemetery, in parks, and medians, usually working during the monsoons when summer rains can help the plants flourish. Cada calle va a tener su color Eventually, he says, each path through the cemetery will be planted with different trees so that the rose will bloom yellow, purple, and lilac in the spring. They've planted more than 350 trees, as well as a pollinator garden full of flowering brittle bush, fairy dusters, chuparosas, and other endemic species, plants that Mueller says are becoming increasingly popular in Hermosillo. He says many Sonorans praise Tucson for its native landscaping, proof that desert species can be beautiful and more sustainable than what he calls the tutti-frutti mix in Hermosillo. The problem now is supplying enough native plants. That, he says, is where the government comes in. Amparo Fontonot leads me inside the Hermosillo City Nursery, where workers are raking up leaves and watering plants. Okay, vamos a reforestar la ciudad, pero la ciudad necesita plantas. Head of the city's Parks and Gardens Department, she says when this administration took office in September, it quickly became clear that growing native plants should be a priority for the all-but-abandoned nursery. Mueller says it's one of just a handful of city-run nurseries in Mexico dedicated entirely to cultivating native plants like mesquites, palo verdes, ironwoods, desert willows, acacias. Necesitamos más árboles de sombra en la ciudad. Fontonot says her top priority are shade trees that can make the city less brutal for people waiting at bus stops or walking down streets. Later, they'll add plants that provide more ground cover, biodiversity and color, like orange and red-flowered Mexican bird of paradise, agaves, and ocotillos. She says people are eager to help reforest the city with hundreds lining up to adopt desert trees at donation events. 
The need is increasingly evident. Gracias a Dios Hermosillo está lleno ahorita de grupos ambientalistas. And Hermosillo, she says, is lucky to have citizen-led environmental groups leading the way on sustainability. That's crucial, she says, because the city has limited resources. At the cemetery, Sierra's daughters pull a wagon full of large blue laundry detergent jugs being reused as watering cans. The volunteers douse the newly planted trees as they wrap up for the day. Like Fontenot, Mueller says his hopes for a greener Hermosillo rest mainly on groups like this one, because waiting for government intervention will take more time than they have with the looming threats of climate change. And it's one way Hermosillo residents can take back their city and make it a place they want to live. Kendall Blust, KJZZ News, Hermosillo. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news, the wet monsoon will continue through August. Here's what that means for Arizona's drought with Lauren Gilger. For more on all of this, we're joined now by Alex Hager, who covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC in Colorado. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So I want to start with sort of the forecast for the rest of the monsoon season as we're looking forward. We have a month or so left. What's it looking like? Yeah, well, after what has already been a strong start to the monsoon season, it is predicted to continue through Mm -hmm. August. Uh, We've got a new federal forecast out from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and I chatted a little bit more about that with your uh, state climatologist down in Arizona, and and she said the same thing, that we're expecting to see more active monsoon patterns through the month of August, and, um, you know, hopefully some more drought mitigation as a result of that. Yeah, so let's talk about drought mitigation here. It's it's like that old song, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink, right? Like, d- yeah. it does ease drought conditions in some ways. Walk through those for us. Yeah, it certainly does. So, I mean, you know, the, that's kind of the very visible part is when it rains, you can see that things get greener. You can see that there are less wildfires, uh, fewer wildfires. And, um, you know, the, the the effect of summer rains we're going to see is, is generally fairly immediate. It's very good for vegetation. It's very good for agriculture. And it's very good for wetting the soils, wetting the plants and making it harder for wildfires to burn. Um, so it's going to change drought in the sense that, you know, it's going to kind of reset how wet things are on the ground. But it is not going to have much of an impact on sort of this decades-long drought that we hear about on the Colorado River. Like when you hear about the drought that's affecting Lake Powell and Lake Mead, Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily going to go away. Uh, The water supply that we see for most of this region um, comes from wintertime snow. It's snow that falls high in the mountains, largely of Colorado and Wyoming, and then melts off through the spring and early summer. So the rain is good. It's not going to, you know, solve our water supply demand imbalance that we've been running for a couple decades mm-hmm. here. Um, short-term positives, long-term neutral. Neutral. So back up to the positives for one more minute, though. I mean, yeah. how does something like replenishing groundwater supplies, for example, help things? Like, th- that's important. We talk a lot about groundwater when we talk about the drought. Yeah, well, especially in central Arizona, I mean, a lot of the safety net for for planning for a future with less water has to do with how much water is stored underground. So, you know, replenishing some of those supplies is going to be really good for uh, just, you know, sort of that backup. It's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to maybe... uh, make it a little longer before you feel its effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw that this season uh, in the early going was shaping up to be a pretty pernicious one as far as wildfire goes in uh, New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah. And, um, you know, New Mexico has been getting hammered by rain, um, you know, really positive developments for them there in terms of wildfire mitig- mitigation. But, you know, in, in both of those states, we're seeing um, 
just a lower risk of burning. The downside is you've seen some of this in northern Arizona. There has been some flooding that comes out of this, especially in areas that have already burned. Heavy rain just you know hits that dirt, and instead of soaking up like a sponge, you know when the the soil is charred and ashy, water will just run right off of it and down into low lying areas. So the reason that we have more flooding is because of strong rain on top of already burned areas. But the strong rain also means that it is less likely to burn this year. Yeah. Okay. So then I want to ask the big why question here, right? Like, why doesn't this help our our Colorado River water supplies, these big reservoirs we're watching dry up? Why? It seems like it should. (laughs) Yeah, it's really just because wintertime precipitation is where all of that water comes from. Uh, You know, I've, I've run some stories on this in the past where, uh, you know, scientists really just keep their eye on snowfall in Colorado and Wyoming for the most part. Um, the Colorado River starts up high in the mountains of Colorado, and that is really the main indicator for how much water is going to be available. Uh, It's nature's reservoir, really. Like, what is a reservoir other than a way to control how much water we use at any given time, right? Like, you're going to have wet years, you're going to have dry years, but a reservoir is a way to store what's left over and release it steadily. And that's what snow is doing. It falls down, it stacks up, and then it slowly melts and trickles off. So it's Mother Nature's reservoir. And that's become less dependable as climate change has made things warmer. It's caused that snow to fall uh, in lower volumes, and it's caused that snow to melt off earlier. And it's also made the soil really thirsty. So it soaks up some of that water before it gets down to the river. So while this rain is really helpful and refreshing and good for vegetation and good for wildfire suppression, really it's the snow that scientists are looking at when they're trying to figure out how much water is going to be available in our drinking supply. Do we have any sense of what that forecast in terms of the snow in the mountains next year looks like and if we'll have any relief on that front? It is certainly a little hard to figure out this far out. Um, In the last few years, snow has been average to below average. It hasn't been particularly extraordinary. The real problem here, though, is that even a good year would not make much of a dent in the water supply because we're running, you know, north of 22 years of drought now. You would need massive, epic, deep powder years for like four, five, six years in a row before you started to see that water supply imbalance start to turn around. All right. Which skiers and snowboarders would love, of course. Right. Yes. Alex Hager with KUNC joining us to talk more about this year's monsoon. Alex, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And now from KJZZ's The Show. Here's a segment from our new series from The Show called Exit Interview. Here we are talking to people who have left Phoenix about why. Because while the Valley of the Sun is still one of the fastest growing places in the country, it seems to bleed people who have really made their mark here. From the pounding summer heat to the never-ending urban sprawl, what is it about this city that never seems to live up to its potential? Here's a taste of what we found. In Phoenix, it's not cool to say you're from Phoenix. Like, I'm guilty of that too. Anybody that told me that they were born and raised in Phoenix and then they're in their 30s, I'm like, what are you doing here? Mm. You should leave. (laughs) I don't trust you at all. You are and have been for your entire life so entrenched in this place. Um, You know, what did it take to to get you to move? What's that been like? Well, what it really took is a pandemic. My body sort of had like this fight or flight response. And I was like, man, I got to get out of this country. Like this country is not built for us. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to grow. And people say in New York, that's if you can survive there, (laughs) you can live anywhere. You think you'll ever come back? I will never say never. I 
really can't say what's going to happen in the future, but I, I'm not letting go of Phoenix. What kept me here was the people. I was fortunate enough to meet some wonderful individuals, genuine, really good people. Today, let's meet Tamara Stanger, who 20 years ago ended up in Phoenix in the middle of the summer and hated it. I was I was so miserable. I was just I didn't understand how people could live in the heat. She got used to it like most of us do and before long found herself never wanting to leave. Right away, I loved the culture of Arizona. I loved the people there. I was in a I think Peoria area and it was just it was really low key laid back. People were awesome and I think I um I felt connected right away to Arizona. Until recently, Stanger was an award-winning chef here in the Valley, crafting innovative cuisine using native Arizona, often foraged ingredients. The Sonoran Desert, I believe, has more edible food in it, like wild foods, than anywhere else in the world. There's so many things that just grow there, and it's so interesting. And we have a very ancient and beautiful, poetic Southwest cuisine. Once, she took me out hunting for mesquite pods in Papago Park, which she would boil down in water for 12 hours and then turn into things like syrup for a fig semifredo. Hers was a unique approach to food that attempted to define what Arizona cuisine is, and she made some pretty big strides in that direction. As an Arizona chef, she worked closely with the James Beard Foundation, competed on the Food Network's Chopped. She was named Best Visionary here, and her restaurant, Cotton and Copper, was a constant on lists of the Valley's best. I guess my goal when I started Cotton and Copper is I wanted people to come to Arizona and know what the food is when you Mm -hmm. get there. She made her career as an Arizona chef, celebrating Arizona ingredients. But when the pandemic hit, her restaurant closed, and she took a job where she grew up, in Utah. Unlike many guests in this series, Stanger didn't want to leave Phoenix. She felt like she had no other choice. Here's our exit interview. When I first got to Phoenix, it was really hard to find a restaurant job where I could work in the kitchen. Everybody wanted to hire me as a server or they wanted me to work the cashier. Nobody felt like I could work in the kitchen, even though I had years of experience. So when I finally found a kitchen job, I just... I loved it so much. I worked at this place called Stackers. <laughs> it was like this bar and grill. I was there for 12 years. Wow. And I absolutely loved it. It just was work the line by myself. It was really hard work. It was fun. And then after that, I went and worked for a couple chefs in Phoenix that really taught me the art behind it. And mm. I think that's when everything clicked and changed. And I really started loving food. So your career really blossomed here. How did you get to the point where, you know, you were able to open your own restaurant, Cotton and Copper, which was, you know, Arizona themed at that? Well, it was one step before that. I I was the executive chef at Helio Basin. Hmm. And I think it was there I really started getting deep into Arizona food. Hmm. They wanted to open with the concept of tacos. And I I said, well, if I'm going to do tacos, I don't want to, like, I'm not Mexican. I didn't want to take Mexican cuisine. I wanted to do Arizona. Like, yeah. if we're going to do this in Arizona, let's figure out what Arizona is and let's turn that into tacos because every who doesn't love tacos, right? <laughs> True. And um, it just kind of went from there. I The first farm I started working with was Ramona Farms, which is an indigenous farm. 
And there's nothing more Arizona than indigenous food, especially mm -hmm. like the corn and beans and things that fed people for generations. Mm -hmm. So I really just started doing research and learning and um, just learning about ancestral foods and heritage cuisine and, and different things that people in Arizona ate. And then like native and naturalized foods. And from there, I was really able to get a sense of this is Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so I think that took off right away at Helio Basin. I won a few awards for just that that cuisine that just was focused in on that. And I think at that point, people really started paying attention. And it was my first time as, as a chef. So mm -hmm. it was kind of cool that it happened so fast. And then from Helio Basin, I opened Cotton and Copper with Sean Trainer, And we wanted to go another step into it and be like, okay, we want to do Arizona cuisine, but we want to make sure that it's something that people understand, we educate them and we make it fun. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was really cool to kind of hone my skills at Cotton and Copper. It was a really, truly a special place. Yeah, it was. So what do you love about Arizona food? Like, and what, what does Arizona food sort of taste like to you? Okay, well, that's, that's a great question because <laughs> Arizona food is, people will call it Southwest, but I mean, Southwest food is a huge umbrella. You can't compare Texas food to California food. They're both Southwest food, right? Yeah. Same with New Mexican cuisine. Like Arizona does have a distinctive flavor that is unlike anywhere else. And that's because of our agriculture, for one thing. I feel like food here in Arizona is very agricultural based. I mean, it's an agricultural state. Food is grown all year round. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that are grown there that you won't really find anywhere else. I would say the number one thing is cactus. Mm. And people need to eat more cactus from the cactus pads. Um, every type of cactus fruit is edible in some form. Huh. But then from there, you have your, your corn, like your native corns, which are so, I mean, they're roasted over mesquite and they smell like mesquite and they're really rich, almost like peanut butter when you smell it. Mm. And it's just so much flavor there. And then, of course, like I just said, mesquite, that's something that we <laughs> forage together. And it's has it such a very distinctive, like rich, roasty, chocolatey, floral smell and taste to it yeah. that's unlike anything else. And of course, like heat elements, your chilies and all your spices and your things that like the chiltepine, which mm -hmm. um, a lot of chefs are using in Arizona. Do you think Phoenix gets the the credit it should for the kind of cuisine it has? I think it's starting to. It didn't at first um, because people didn't really know what it was. I mean, we we did. We have our Sonoran dog, which is yeah. completely amazing. And I think we have uh, quesadillas and <laughs> a few things that are Arizona food. But I mean, at the same time, like it's so much deeper than that. You know, the food scene in Arizona is amazing. Like yeah. there's so many diverse chefs and they're so incredible. And there's so much amazing food. You could go anywhere. You could probably eat out every night <laughs> and never get it and have something different all the time that truly blows your mind. So the food scene there is so incredible, but a lot of it's cuisine from other places. And I just felt like there needed to be some places that were distinctively Arizona. Yeah. I mean, so you, you spent a lot of time and a lot of passion doing that, like trying to create a cuisine that, that hadn't really been defined yet, Arizona food, right? And then- yeah. The pandemic hit and you you had to close and you have ultimately left. You're in Utah now. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, um, yeah, when the pandemic hit, it was like our 
the busiest we'd ever been in the restaurant, like the most profitable we had ever been was the night right before we decided to close. And it was really depressing because it's like, we're going somewhere great, but we couldn't put our employees in danger. They were really, really scared. And at the time, nobody knew, nobody knew what was going on. It was just so crazy. Um, We didn't know what steps to take. But we just needed to protect our people, and that meant everything. So mm-hmm. we ended up closing, and then during the time we were closed, I made a lot of pies. <laughs> and I was just selling pies because I was trying to, like, just get some kind of cash to give my employees. It wasn't much, but it was just something because yeah. at the time, the government wasn't supplementing any pay. So it was, like, just trying to give them something so they could eat still. And um, we did that for a while and we did fine. And then we, we were selling like bottles of whiskey too, because they're mm-hmm. letting restaurants just sell alcohol to go. So we were doing pretty <laughs> well doing that. And then um, it was decided by the courts that restaurants couldn't sell liquor to go anymore. And that was also devastating because at that point it's like, we're, we can't make enough money right now on food without alcohol to pay our employees. Mm. And so we ended up having to furlough everybody and, um, it, I don't know. It was just hard opening and closing. And I, I think it got to a point where we had worked so hard through it and there was no relief that um, unfortunately Cotton and Copper had to close its doors. And that was probably the saddest day for me just because, um, I don't know, it was my baby. Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. loved it there. I wanted it to go forever. I loved the community there. It was in South Tempe and it was just like just the most amazing community and um there's definitely nothing like it. Hmm. I can say that for sure. So it, you didn't only have to say goodbye to the restaurant, though. You also ended up having to say goodbye to Phoenix. You found a great opportunity where you are in Utah at the Lake House at Deer Creek. And you're from Utah, right? What's it been like going back? Um, it's completely different than I remember. <laughs> so, um, it's beautiful here. The The Lake House sits right on a lake um, by Heber City. It's between Park City and Sundance. And I mean, it's it's the most gorgeous place I've ever seen in my life. And it's really cool here because I, I did grow up in Utah. And when I was a kid, I foraged all the time, ate wild foods. I was into all the stuff that I was into when I was in Arizona. Hmm. So it was, it's cool revisiting that and going back to those foods, which yeah. are very much like Arizona, just a little mountain foods, a little bit different. And I think my path here is kind of like in Arizona. I feel like Utah really needs more food culture. And so I'm kind of on a mission here to build that and (laughs) kind of show people what these foods I grew up with um, were, like the wild games, all the agriculture here too. I'm kind of doing what I did in Arizona and just educating people and trying to develop a cuisine here. Yeah, yeah. It's been an interesting year, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) I imagine. So, you know, looking back on it, right, like now that you've left Phoenix, you've been gone for a year or more. What are your impressions looking back on Phoenix? Well, um, I love that now I've left. There's a lot of other chefs that are starting to pick up where I left off. It means a lot to me because, I mean, 20 years of my life in in Phoenix is a long time. And I still love Phoenix. I still have a home in Phoenix. I, (laughs) I actually try to get down there at least once a month if it's possible. There's a lot of like griping in Phoenix, especially this time of year when it gets super hot about, (laughs) you know, this place doesn't have culture. Everybody's from somewhere else. You know, it's all strip malls. It's all sprawl, right? Like what are they missing? What are they missing? Arizona has always been a melting pot and it's always had a lot of cultures come in there. It's 
and it's part of what it is. It's part of what makes it exciting. The cool thing about Phoenix, I noticed though, when people come and visit, they get stuck there and they end up living there because <laughs> people do. It's true. That's why there's so many different cultures there. They just, they don't want to leave. I mean, it happened to me. So you think you'll ever come back? Uh, I will never say never. <laughs> <laughs> I really love I really love Arizona. But also, I mean, I am on a different chapter now, so I, I really can't say what's going to happen in the future, but I, I'm not letting go of Phoenix. <laughs> so <laughs> I will always make sure there's some reason I have to keep coming back. We won't let go of you. All right. <laughs> Tamara Stanger, executive chef at the Lake House at Deer Creek. Tamara, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story. Thank you for your reflections on this. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. And finally, in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Here's Phil Latzman again. Well, on Friday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed legislation that may help provide Arizona with more water. Sponsored by Democratic Representatives Raul Grijalva and Greg Stanton, the bill authorizes the Colorado River Indian tribes to lease water gained through conservation. The tribes will most likely save and collect that water by slowing irrigation to farmlands. Devin Reinerson is an attorney for the tribes. He says the money will be gained and used to upgrade water infrastructure. Over time, um, the tribe will then bring that land back into production, and it's going to be operating on a more efficient basis in their agricultural economy. Um, and, and the economy of the uh, western part of the state is really going to be able to thrive because of that. Reinerson says the amount of water that will be provided is still to be determined. The bill now awaits passage in the Senate. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.